So if you have a Bible uh, nearby you, you might like to turn to the book of Joshua. We're looking at Joshua together uh, this morning in a series that we we started. And uh, forgive me if I'm a little bit sniffly. I'm, I'm coming out of a, a bit of a cold, which sort of started last week, and I'm sort of nearly out of it. So yeah, we're, we're, um, we're looking at uh, a theme, New Generation Revolution. And um, I, I, I introduced this... So, so that I don't spend ages and ages, I, if you're here visiting for the first time or you, 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 you weren't here last week, um, this is a series that we're looking at in our morning gatherings. So just to say, last week I spoke on three qualities of the new generational attitude. Back in June of this year, I really started to pray for our church. I pray all the time, but I was really praying about now, September, new, and I just felt God lay a word in my heart speak on a new generation revolution, a revolution of love for, the, for a new generation. And I, I, I unpacked that last Sunday. So if you didn't hear that, please get hold of that. You can listen online. We put all of our messages, go online, irrespective of speaking, and you can listen to them for free because we want to resource the church. So please have a listen to that. But I, I covered three things of a new generational attitude, and they were that, you know, we, uh, there were people of word and spirit. They were people of courage and that there were people of a can-do spirit. And if we are to lay hold of the promises of God for us today, we need to, we'll need to be people of word and spirit. We need to know the presence of the Holy Spirit and meditate on the word of God to be successful in the things of God. And if we, do, we need to have, be a people of courage, that means to face our fears in faith. And there will be challenges for the church in this coming era. And I shared a little bit about that and talked about facing, when I face some of the fears that I have, I've got to face them in faith, amazing faith. And I spoke about that. And we see that Joshua's day, the people stood in faith, facing their fears, and they crossed into great promise. God's got some great things for you, me, and our church, and um, your life. And there were people of a can-do spirit. They said, we'll do it, we will go. When Joshua said, let's cross over, they said, we will do it, we will go. And there's something about where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength coming into the New Testament. In Christ, we can do. So when I speak about being of a can-do spirit, not speak about being just positive and whooping up some faith, but trusting in Christ, we can in Christ. And um, so we looked at that. So today, I want to just look at preparing to possess our promise. There's some preparation, and Joshua encouraged the people to cross over the Jordan, and to do that, they had to prepare themselves. Um, The Jordan was a barrier, as it were, between them, the people, and the promise that God had for them, a great land and a new life. And they'd been walking in the wilderness and out of captivity from Egypt, but in captivity in the wilderness. I know lots of Christians that are freed in Christ and yet walking in bound by certain things. And sometimes there's barriers. We can be freed from the old life to some degree, but there's other things that chain us down and we can walk in almost a, a wilderness, although being a Christian almost. And there's this walking in the fullness of Christ that helps us overcome some of those barriers of our lives. And the Jordan was like a barrier to them, the River Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I sort of qualified that. And um, they, they, they needed to be prepared. And so Joshua said, let's get ready to cross over. And then there's a number of things that seem to come out of um, the end of chapter 1 and all throughout chapter 2. There's three things that I want to just look at. I tend to think in threes. And so the first thing is this. We don't rest 
until we all rest. Have a look at this with me a minute. At the end of Joshua chapter 1, Joshua 1, um, verse 12 to 15. First thing is this. But to, so, so Joshua says, let's get ready. Get ready. We're going to cross over. We're, th- this would have been monumental. They were in captivity for 40 years, a whole generation. And now they were, they were inside the promise. And, Joshua, and all the people said, yeah, we're going to do it with you. And then Joshua does something. He gets ready. He prepares. And he does a number of things to prepare for this. And it's, it's important to be prepared in our hearts for promise. And the first thing is this that we see in this account. It's towards the end of chapter 1. Joshua says, but to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. After he said, the Lord, your God, will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, children, and livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites, You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. The first thing is this in preparation. And as I think of us as a community and a community of people is we don't rest until we all rest. If we're to possess promise as a community... As a church, I'm talking about now, this was the Israelite nation possessing their promise. And as a church, I'm just thinking, as a, a principle, I'm going to suggest to you here, is that we don't rest till we all. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh felt that they had done their bit. In the battles that they'd, uh, that they'd waged up to this point in time, they'd won some battles and won some land. And so they were now permitted to have their piece of land east of the Jordan, east of the river there. And, um, but jo- what Joshua says to them, yes, you're, you, you are permitted to have that land, but rather than just you say, well, I've done my bit, I'm going to rest up now, the rest of you go off and get, get the rest of the land, Joshua says, the principle is, we want you, you your w- w- wives and family and your children, you stay there, but your fighting men come and join us together so that we can take the rest of the land together. And so there's this idea that We'll rest when the rest of us rest. That's what he's saying. We will rest as a group of people when the rest of us rest. You see, there's something in this account and in Christianity, in coming into New Testament, and I'll show this in a moment, that speaks of um, solidarity, family. Um, theologically, it'd be called, there's an idea of corporate solidarity. Uh, there's an idea of inter dependence, not just independence. Interdependence is that we are woven together. Independence is that we are separate and of our own. And there's an aspect that we are independent. Before God, you stand and God sees you face to face. There's this independent. And yet, as a church, as people, the people of God, the family of God, we're interdependent. We are woven as a family. You come into the New Testament, there's this understanding that we are now adopted into the family of God. And so we are interdependent as well as... Inter- in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's this idea of solidarity, family. You know, I, I'm half Italian, and um, in, in Italian culture, folklore, there is this idea with the mafia, 
Not that my, not that my family are into the mafia, by the way. But with, with the mafia, there's business and then there's family. Not, not that any, um, anything to do with any of that. But, but with my family, it's family. In so, but business in, in, in with the mafia would have been, you know, it's not personal. And they go and do something terrible, they say it's business. But if it's family. And there is, in the Mediterranean culture, there is this idea of interdependence, family. And Christianity is birthed um, in an Eastern culture. I would say it's God's culture. Not just the East is God's culture, but there's a, there's a, and there's this, there's this spirit of and heart of interdependence, solidarity. If we look in the New Testament, family. So you, you don't just come and sit on a seat in a building and you're on your own and we do a service. We, we sit in, we, we go, you know, we, and, we go, and we and do our own thing. But we are a living family. This is pretty spectacular. And we are part of the family of God, which around the world is billions and billions of people. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Has repercussions, has privileges. It also has some repercussions. Paul said this, in the teaching of Paul the Apostle, coming into the New Testament just for a moment, so you don't think I'm making something up. um, Paul teaches this, as in the man Adam all die, so in, I'm paraphrasing it a bit, in the man Christ all shall live. There's this idea of solidarity. Because people say, well, Adam did it, ain't me. But there's this idea of mankind Human beings are inter, created by God to be interdependent as well as independent. Western uh, mindset and culture now is becoming more and more independent. Well, it's all right for me to do it. I don't affect you. I do what I like as long as I do. And it's very becoming. And, but God's heart is, yes, we are individuals, but we're also part of the family of God. Now, if I can come back to that a little bit then, and this is why Joshua says to the other Israelites, you know, the half-tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites, yes, you can have rest, yes, you have worked hard, but let's do this together because we're family, because we are interdependent. might find that hard today. Somebody says, well, I've done my bit. I'm off, I'm, cl- I'm clocking off now, I'm going home, I've done my bit now. You just, it's nothing to do with me. But it wasn't like that, and it's not like that. So, how does this translate perhaps today? I suggest, may I suggest to you, this first thing regarding this point is this. Sort of bringing it and say, how does it, how do we take hold of this now? For church, family of God. We're a local expression of the church, the family of God, irrespective of denomination, okay? And we are a part of the family of God for our local expression. Um, uh, We are interdependent. Um, You know, uh, the other day at a life group leaders meeting, Pastor Andrew was sharing this idea of koinonia. We are in fellowship in the New Testament the word of the, uh, the idea of being together is, is called is a Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship, and it means active togetherness. So to be in the family of God is active togetherness. It, it was always has been the idea of God's heart, active togetherness, and it always will be. So for church family, 
See, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh could have said, no, and they were probably saying, no, we've done our bit. We want to stay here. We've, we're okay now. We're going to rest up. You, you go off and do your thing. But um, and we could say, I mean, you and I could say, you know, I've got my family. I've got my friends. I don't need to mix. You know, I've, I've got the people that I know. I don't need to know any others. And if we're to continue to grow as a church and a family, then we need to be not just like rest at a certain point, but we need to be interdependent. And uh, that's, how, that's how the kingdom of God advances. You, well, I could say something like, well, I, you know, I, I don't need a life group. I'm, I'm happy on my own. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just okay. I've not got problems. I've not got issues. I read the Bible. But we're called to be interdependent, together, active fellowship. That's part of the family of God. Well, you know, I don't need a marriage course. You know, my marriage is fine, and it probably is. Probably your marriage is great. But don't rest on the East Bank. Come together to help others rest as well that maybe don't feel quite so good right now. How about starting a course or a group or joining with others and inviting some? I I don't know. That's perhaps how it could maybe work out with this whole aspect of interdependence, active togetherness. If we're to possess our promise as an Oasis community, we will need something of this growing attitude of the family of God. I'm sure that we, as Christians, understand this idea of the family of God, but there's something to embrace afresh and again, and I feel challenged afresh and again to embrace. We don't rest until we all rest. We don't rest until we all rest. And it's about pulling together. One of the first things that I shared nearly 10 years ago in in joining uh, Oasis was if if anyone can remember at that time, for about three years, I shared a word. And it went went on for a while. Unify. I felt the Holy Spirit say to me one Sunday morning. And we we started a, uh, a Tuesday night meeting where all the life groups came together and we prayed together and we stood together. And the whole reason of that, I now realize, is this principle of interdependence, being the family of God, resting when we all rest. Second thing that we see is, is, is this, wanted to move on in, in our preparation. And coming in now to chapter two. So I, I want to just look at uh, a couple of things that we'll see um, in chapter two. Is, um, second thing is this, God chooses everyone, not just a special one. Mourinho is the special one. You know, man who used to manage Chelsea, he coined that phrase, you know, why was he so good? Because I'm the special one. But I want to say to you this morning, I'm going to suggest to you that God chooses anyone, not just a special one. There may be certain special ones, but I'm so glad, I am so excited that God chooses everyone and anyone and not just a special one. How do I say that? Chapter 2, verse 1. When Joshua sends out the spies to look out the land to prepare, so he gets everyone together and says, we're going to not rest until we all rest. That's the first preparation. Second preparation that he sees as an attitude is this. He, he, he sends out the spies, and the spies go out, and it says, so they went... In verse 1, so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So they went, the spies went, and when they entered the city, uh, the city, 
they stayed at the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And they entered that house and they stayed there. They were spying out the land, the citadels and the strongholds. It's chapter 2, verse 1. Now, it's really interesting. Um, in, in, uh, um, so in Eastern culture, and at that time, this isn't my view, but it was, and I'm not saying it's the right view, but it was a view at that time. Um, so two things would have been against Rahab. Number one, she was a woman. And number two, she was a prostitute. There were two things that would have been against her in the culture of the day and at the time. And for, and for Israelite people, Jewish people, to... to um, and third thing would have been, she was a non-Jew. She was a non-Jew, so she would be classed as untouchable. Untouchable because she was a non-Jew. Um, not, not, not deferred from because she was a woman. And untouchable even more, double whammy, because she was a prostitute. And so this is... Uh, casual reading, you think, oh, that's a bit of an interesting story, a bit colourful, a little bit of a twist there, make a good novel. But in actual fact, it's spectacular because it shows us that an interesting... And this is throughout history and throughout um, Bible history and throughout church history and life history that God often turns up. The Holy Spirit moves in lives and in people and groups and countries and areas and cities and, and individuals in, in, in what we often don't, just don't expect, didn't realize. And you don't have to be a special one, per se, to be, to be chosen by God. It's in, really interesting because in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 31, Rahab is one of the heroes commended for faith, her faith. That's how spectacular it is in this story. And so... When you and I, uh, when you live a life based on the choices of God and not, uh, not the man or by chance, then we're able to live a promise-filled life. When we live a life based on God's choices, not by the choices of man or the chance of life, then we can live in a promise-filled life. You know, when it comes to chance, interesting, a few years ago, wasn't it? Quite a few years ago now, in fact, I think the National Lottery has been going like 20 years. So 20 years ago, it hit the TV uh, with, it could be you, with a big pointy finger coming down from heaven. You know, like, like almost like a godlike, godlike character saying that chance, chance was like almost like godlike. It could, and, and everybody was thinking, oh, it could be me. And the idea was if everybody thought it could be them, it could be you. Do you know that um, the odds for all six numbers coming up and you um, coming up with the jackpot in the National Lottery were put up again and they're now one in 45 million. One in 45 million chance of you winning the National Lottery. Do you know there is more chance of you being hit fatally by lightning than winning the national lottery, the, lot, lot, lottery, the lottery. Um, there's more chance than being struck fatally by lightning. One in three hundred thousand chance if you're struck by lightning. I mean, one in three hundred thousand chance. It, it probably ain't going to happen. That's one in three hundred thousand chance. Don't don't all go out there now. Think, oh, it's oh, oh, not very much. One in three hundred thousand. One in three hundred thousand chance. One in forty-five million. I mean, it. Well. You know, there you go. It sort of says its case, doesn't it? It, it, it makes its own case. Um, so, uh, we don't live. I don't want to live by chance. I want to live by God's choice. We don't want to live by chance. We want to live by the go- choice of God. 
to put it another way, there's more chance of success due to God's choice. I honestly believe that there's more chance, I don't believe in chance, but just to coin a phrase, there's more chance of success in life than living by, when you live, and I live by God's choice. Do you know, there's more probability of being chosen by God than you winning the national lottery. Can I just say that? Let me tell you, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, there's an amazing, uh, an amazing thing that, that, that God speaks through um, Peter into the heart for us today by the power of the Spirit. He says this, the Lord, Peter says in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in, ke- this is interesting, the Lord is not slow, slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Get this, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He wants no one to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. God loves the world. God so loves the world. He gave his one and only son. The possibilities of God's choice are for you, are astronomical. So I don't know about you, but I want to choose to live by God. If that's the case, God doesn't want anyone, God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We have a choice to follow or not follow him. That's a choice, but his desire for us is incredible. So, you know, God chooses anyone, not necessarily a special one. That's just so encouraging for your life and my life. So You know, for us today, God chooses you. Let's choose to step up and step out. God's promises are good and true, and they'll come to us at the right time. Let's choose then to step up and step out. That's our our challenge for us today. Finally, third thing is this, if we're going to be prepared for our promise, is uh, we don't rest till we all rest. I want to live by the choices of God, and God chooses me, not because I'm a special one, but he just loves me. It's great news. It's great news. Third and final thing is this. Is your God too small? Is your God too small? An interesting thing. Look at this. Look at something. It's something that Rahab says. Rahab says an amazing thing. Rahab says something spectacular at the end of, uh, towards the end of, um, of chapter 2. She says this. She says, we're all quaking. It's verse 11 of chapter 2. Basically, this is a paraphrase. We're all quaking. The whole city's quaking. Why? Because she says this. For the Lord your God is a God in heaven above and on the earth below. Casual reading. We could, we could whip past that. She, she says this. We're quaking because the, we, I understand, she says, I understand that the Lord, your God, is a God of heaven above and on the earth below. Let me just explain that for a moment too, because that's spectacular. At first glance, you could just glance past that. But what she says is a spectacular understanding and very fundamental if we're to possess the promises for our own lives and as a church and as a community. A man called J.B. Phillips, um, a Christian writer, wrote a book in the, in the late 1950s, early 60s. Is, and it says, your God is too small. And basically, he was speaking into the season and the time where of enlightenment and uh, Christians worried about not having a God big enough to deal with uh, evolution and science. And so he wrote this amazing book to show Christians that, you know, God is a big God. God can deal with everything. 
and he's more than enough. And um, Rahab here really displays something. Rahab has a, a big view of God. Let, let me just explain. At, at the time, in the culture of where she lived, Canaan, the Canaanite culture, there was this belief that um, people believed in the gods that ruled the hill country, gods that ruled certain rivers, God that ruled valleys. And different gods ruled different areas. And there was a, there was a struggle to see which god was the strongest. And so different, the, the Canaanites followed a god of the hill, another would follow the god of the rivers. But Rahab displays something. So she's from her culture, but she displays something that far outweighs the small view of God that the people of the day had. She says, but I see. I see that your God is a God, basically she's a God of all gods. God bigger than any of these gods that I've seen so far of cities and hills and valleys and rivers. She says, I see that your God is a God of heaven above and on the earth below. In other words, your God is a big God. Your God is the God. Your God is the only God. Your God is the God of everything. Bingo. She gets something that people didn't get. And sometimes you and I don't get. We can fall into the habit of um, thinking of God smaller than he really is. Um, It's pretty amazing, but um, God is a God of greatness, a God of incredible mercy and incredible power. I read uh, recently that the, in 2001, the U.S. Department of Energy um, did some statistics over that year. And they ca- I don't know how you calculate this, but cleverer people than me, you and I, and all of us maybe put together, calculated that during, that, uh, during the course of uh, that year, they did a calculation of the power of the sun. And um, they calculated that the sun delivers... Uh, more energy to the earth in, in an hour than, and they did this in 2001, than all of the energy that could be made on the, t- the whole planet. So every form of energy, um, every form of energy, whether it's nuclear, electric, gas, or coal, wind, put it all together. All the energy that the earth could make, the sun delivers more energy in one hour than all of the potential energy that the earth can make and consume in a year. In one hour. In one hour. The sun. That's, the sun is a pretty powerful ball of fire up there. I know when we go out on a sunny day, right? It's pretty incredible. In actual fact, they calculated it as this. Each hour, 430 quintillion This will please you, Ian, because you're an engineer. Quintillion joules of energy from the sun hits the earth every hour. I know, you've gone, I can see some of you shutting down already. I did the same. But just stay with me. Just stay with me, because this is spectacular. 430, I haven't made this up, quintillion, I think, if somebody's making that up, I get past a billion and that's it. You know, zillion, quintillion. You know, what on earth? But it's, it's true. Each hour, 430 quintillion, a joule is a measure of energy, of energy from the sun hits the earth every hour. That's 430 with 18 zeros after it. Every hour! More than what we can produce, the whole planet in a year and consume, the sun gives us every hour. And the sun, they reckon, 
is an infinite source of energy. Um, they're, they're talking about it growing and growing in five billion years and, and forcing the earth off its axis. But that's five billion years' time, if whatever the calculations are. But it's infinite energy. It's pretty powerful. Would you, would you sort of agree with me? It's pretty powerful. I mean, that's power. Talk about power. If we could harness that power. And that's what they're trying to do. And that's what the calculations are all about. In four words, God said, let there be light. That's pretty powerful. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. What an amazing sun, as in the sun in the sky. But when we say, what an amazing Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, it's awesome. When I discovered that, I thought, I thought, blooming heck, Lord, this is really awesome. <laughs> no, honestly, I did. I thought, I just didn't understand or know this. Now I found this out. It's helped me understand that you're a big God. Um, 1994, I was, um, I was really privileged. I went to uh, a church in Canada. It was the airport vineyard, and it was 1994. And during that meeting in September 1994, and with this I'll be closing, there was a man, and he would shout out at the middle of the meeting, Big God! And he would run around the church. And then he'd get back to his seat and go, ten minutes later, you know what I'm going to say, Big God! And he'd run around the church. Well, I'd come from Aberdeen. It was 20-something 20, 20 years ago, and I thought, for a minute, we better go and get hold of him. He should be sitting down. What's he doing? But in actual fact, the story is this. This guy came into a vision. He had a, an amazing vision of the immense power and nature of this incredible God who was a loving father and a heavenly daddy, and yet he was all-powerful. And that's why he would shout out every now and again, big God, because it was a revelation to him. Is your, our God, big enough? If he's the God who said, let there be light, and the power of that son is in the power of the hand of a loving father. Do you know what? Our loving Heavenly Father is a mighty God whom we serve. And do you know what? There is this understanding of immense power and immeasurable love. God has immense power and it's held in balance with immeasurable love. How about that? What a big God we serve. So no wonder Paul the Apostle says this in Ephesians 3.20. Look at this. I think Paul had a revelation of big God the God who said, let there be light. Paul says this, and I now understand why Paul wrote this, because he had a revelation of God as the immense, powerful, beautiful, immeasurable, loving Father. Because we think of Father, and it's very, we can picture it in an earthly way, but think of the immeasurable. Paul says this, God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Ephesians 3.20. God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Ephesians 3.20, rather. Ephesians 3.20. Big God. What a mighty God we serve. And on that day, Rahab saw the big God. She said, he's not only the God of the heavens, he's the God of the earth below. And that saved her. That saved her. That faith that revelation, that knowledge, that understanding. And that's a new generational attitude and an understanding of God that we will need to lay hold of and refresh. Maybe you and I need to refresh that for our lives. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we've been bruised. Maybe we've been around church for a long time. Maybe we get into a habit. I don't know what you want to call it, but all I know is that I need a stirring. I'm experiencing a stirring of the big God 
that he is. So may I encourage you to, as part of a new generational revolution in heart and attitude, to stand up and step out and lay hold of this understanding of what a great and mighty and big God that we serve today. You know, we won't rest until we all rest. God chooses everyone, not just the special one. And our God is an awesome God. We sing a great songs, don't we? He's a mighty God. He's incredible. Ask God for a fresh revelation. And as we do, let's stand up and let's step out. Let's stand together, shall we? Folks, let's stand together. We're going to pray together. We're going to stand up and we're going to step out. And um, should we just stand? We're going to close. Close right now, right this moment. God bless you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Just want to release you this morning. We pray, Father God, as we come before you, we love you, we honor you, we bless you. And uh, I just pray, Father, that um, we, we'll just pick to this morning something, Holy Spirit, that you will just put into our hearts and minds that which we need this morning. There is absolutely no way that uh, you know, I could or anyone else speaking could could convince, force, um, twist the arm of anyone. But Holy Spirit, you, you bring revelation. You're awesome. And you love your church. And you love your people. And see the people here before you. You love them so much. You just love. You just love. And so I just pray for revelation, that you'll fill our hearts, you'll fill our minds, you'll fill our spirits with the words that we need to take hold of, that you would empower us, you energize us to stand up and step out and seize the moment and be the people that you want us to be so that we can be prepared to possess the promises for our families, our homes, our lives, and importantly, as Oasis, as a local church, as a community, interdependent with one another in the power of your spirit. And I just pray, Father God, that you can choose anyone in no respect of persons, whether we've been here two weeks or 20 years, you choose us all. And Lord, we bless you for that and say thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Here we are. We love you. Send me. Amen.